What's up, you guys? Happy holidays. Welcome back to Indirect Message. I'm Lacey Green. I have some fun personal news to share with you today. In October, under a flurry of falling orange leaves, I got engaged. He proposed to me at the foot of a giant waterfall after we had scrambled up a hurricane-stricken hiking trail in North Carolina. Yeah, I I knew he had planned to ask me at some point, Um, but I wasn't expecting it just then. I was definitely very surprised. In actually the weekend before we took that trip, I had mused over a modello with an old friend that perhaps I should propose to him. Which is all kind of odd, because for most of my dating years, I really couldn't see myself getting married. At least in theory, getting married is committing to one person for the rest of your life. And how can our brains even process such a decision? I was definitely nervous to ask you to marry me. That's Morty, my partner. But at the same time, I knew I was going to do it. I was very confident that I was going to do it. It was just about getting the right moment. None of your nerves were, should I marry this person? (laughs) Wait, none? Not at all. No, I was completely confident in that. Throughout the three-some years we've been together, we've talked about the institution of marriage at length. Is marriage still relevant in a modern society? How do you do the last name part when you both have feminist well, values? Change the, change the way that we, way that we see, each, see other. each other. Or our relationship. Why do we need the government all up in this? What are the legal benefits exactly? Make sure that we grow together rather than apart throughout our lives. Do we have what it takes? Do we have what it takes? Do we have what it takes? In the end, after asking a lot of questions, we uh, obviously decided that we do. On today's indirect message, I wanted to share a few of the emotional insights, words of wisdom, and of course, evidence-based research that helped us decide whether or not we were ready to get married. And maybe for someone else out there, it can help you decide too. Chapter one, the hard questions. As you guys probably know by now, I think that asking questions is the key to life and the universe and maybe even a successful marriage. But it's very important to ask the right questions. Culturally, we're taught that if you love someone enough, if your feelings transcend some sort of threshold, that means they're the one for you. So we ask, do I love you enough to marry you? But Susan Piver argues that whether or not we love them is the wrong question. I've been lucky on the relationship front. I've had really good relationships, generally speaking, but they were over. So why would this relationship, even though it was loving and, and, and healthy and so forth, what would prevent this relationship from ending like the other ones? So the epiphany that I had was, oh, those past relationships, they did not end because someone stopped loving someone. They ended because someone was unable to love the life that we were creating together. Some of you might recognize Susan from a previous episode, The Four Secret Truths About Relationships. She wrote her best-selling book, The Hard Questions, after a critical realization. There are three entities in your relationship. Number one, 
is you. Number two is your partner. And number three is your life together. And preparing for marriage means taking a deep and honest look at that third one. Just because you love someone does not mean that you will be able to create a life together that you both love. So no one ever drew that out for me because we're sort of encouraged to think, well, when you find someone you love, everything else takes care of itself. And you're, you'll naturally, you'll love your life together. But when you think about arguments you've had with loved ones, they're usually not arguments about love. They're arguments about money or home, you know, food even. I realized, well, what do I know? What do I know about the way he views our life besides that he loves me? The 100 essential questions in her book are basically conversations to have about your life together. Do you understand my relationship to my work? I think I understand it. You want to help people with what you do. I think that's a big part of what gives you satisfaction from, from your work is like mm -hmm. you're making something that will have impact beyond yourself. Yeah, I like to feel useful. Useful, yeah. yeah. What do you need me to know about your culture and family of origin? So you're talking about me being half Persian, half Mormon? Yeah, there's like a lot, a lot going on there, so. Well, my hope is that you too will become half Persian, half Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm working on it. <laughs> no, but seriously, I feel like you have taken the time to understand. The hard questions are wide ranging, some lighthearted, others more substantial, but I couldn't help but notice something missing. Where's the sex talk? In the updated edition that Susan released this year, she cut the sex chapter out from a previous version. As you might imagine, I was curious why. I was so happy to take the sex section out. The main thing was, what the hell do I know about other people's sex lives? That was 50% of the reason. The other 50% was, and this is my experience, talking about sex is not always as helpful as meeting each other in other kinds of communication. Not just sex. But I don't know. I mean, it's tried to say, but it's just so personal. It's so particular. It's so unique to everyone. I could not possibly come up with questions that would be relevant. I see what she's saying here. But I do think that despite her reservations, we should actually talk about sex before getting married and not just sort of feel it out. A thorough yes-no maybe chart is a starting point. But conversations about things like changing bodies and desires, emotional and physical needs in the bedroom, are probably a good idea too. Of course, the hard questions are not just a rote exercise in questions and answers. More importantly, it's about how well we listen to each other. Catherine McCoon described listening in a way that's stuck with me since I read it. Listening is when you stop thinking your thoughts and start thinking mine. And I so appreciate you bringing up Catherine's quote, the wonderful writer. It's not like, oh, let me receive what you said and think about it and catalog it and, and critique it. And it's just a receiving of what this person is saying and, and what they mean. That is very vulnerable because when I stop thinking my thoughts, I am unarmored by my opinions and judgments and critiques and, oh, this means that and that means this. And when those things preclude actual listening because I'm listening to what I think about what you said, not what you said. Some of the more common pop wisdom on listening advises us to repeat back to someone what they've told us. So I'm hearing you say this. And hey, 
that can be a starting point. But listening is more than just repeating words back. It's seeing the person behind the words. It's understanding how they make sense of the world, the internal logic that guides them. And this is significantly harder to do. In a sense, you could say that listening and loving are identical. Identical. The great Zen priest and poet John Tarrant Roshi, this is my favorite thing anyone ever said, said, attention is the most basic form of love. Through it, we bless and are blessed. And I think about that all the time. Like, if you can't pay attention, meaning notice, take in, you can't love. It is the seed syllable of love, the basic currency. I do love that. Listening is loving. In general, I've found that the best listeners I know are also curious people. Being curious about each other cultivates intimacy, whether it's a romantic relationship, friend, family, or someone else. In a way, marriage might be a commitment to this curiosity. Naturally, I refuse to believe that curiosity killed the cat. But could curiosity kill an engagement? For some people, the hard questions leads to painful disagreements. It's scary to be in a disagreement with someone you love. For reasons I'm sure we can all relate to, we think, well, they're not going to like us anymore, or, or I'm going to fall out of love with them, or this means we're not right for each other. So we try to shut the disagreement down. Susan told me her most frequently asked question was from people whose partners refused to have the conversations with them, which was kind of shocking. Aside from the deal-breaker questions like, do you want to have children, and one says yes and the other says no, the disagreement is as valuable as agreement. The point of these questions is not come up with the answers, engrave them in stone, and then move on. It's know each other, show who you are. And all of these questions, P.S., are going to come up anyway. So why not ask them now? There's another benefit to having one, two, or several passionate disagreements before you decide to marry each other. Because as it turns out, one of the most reliable predictors of divorce isn't how often a couple disagrees, but how they communicate during a disagreement. Chapter 2. The Magic Number Some of the most influential research about divorce comes from psychologist Dr. John Gottman. He studied divorce for over 40 years, which is a good chunk longer than my entire life. His research has shown him that a disagreement is an opportunity. Turns out negativity is actually very productive in relationships because hurt feelings and negativity wind up, for one thing, calling out stuff that doesn't work in relationships, right? You hurt your partner's feelings, you learn something, right? And you talk about how to make it better next time. So you don't want a relationship where there's nothing negative going on. But how should we go about disagreeing with each other? In his lab at the University of Washington, they figured out how to predict if a couple's relationship would thrive or end in divorce with 90% accuracy. Gottman and his team identified four behaviors in particular that are exceptionally corrosive to relationships. He calls these the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So the first horseman of the apocalypse is what we call criticism. And criticism is a way of complaining that suggests that your partner's personality is defective. Criticism is a type of personal attack, 
You always do this. You are so selfish. You never think of me. He compares this to a complaint, which is communicating what we actually feel and need. It worries me when you come home late. I thought we agreed that you would call. Notice how complaints point to a behavior that we'd like to change, while criticism points to a defect in your partner. It's an attack on who they are as a person. Now, the second horseman of the apocalypse kind of follows from the first, because if you feel criticized, you're going to be feeling attacked and you're going to be warding off this attack, right? And that's defensiveness, the second horseman of the apocalypse. And we found there are two ways of becoming defensive that are most common in couples. The first is righteous indignation. And in righteous indignation, what you're doing is meeting a complaint with a counter complaint. The second way of being defensive is I can act like an innocent victim. And the most common way people act like an innocent victim is they whine. I cared about your day, I really did. Gottman argues that defensiveness is a way to blame our partner when they raise an issue with our behavior. It says, I didn't do anything wrong. You did. So letting go of the ego, admitting when we're wrong, and accepting our role in a conflict can be incredibly powerful. Now, the third horseman is our best predictor of divorce, and it is disrespect and contempt. Now, contempt is a little bit different than criticism because in contempt, you feel superior to your partner. You're speaking from a higher plane, kind of like I'm on this podium and I'm talking down. Well, if you do that to your partner, you feel, let's say you feel cleaner than your partner or more punctual or smarter than your partner, then you're gonna kind of talk down to your partner and the comment that will come out will be this kind of snobby, contemptuous comment. The most common expressions of contempt are mocking, name-calling, eye-rolling, sneering, scoffing. You get the picture. Contempt grows over time, in the absence of fondness and appreciation for each other. Gottman says the antidote is to create a relationship culture of appreciation for each other. Telling the other person when they do something you admire or respect or are grateful for. I would say that this is the biggest difference between my relationship with Morty and my many exes. Not that they were contemptuous. They weren't. But we hadn't intentionally cultivated that loving culture of appreciation between us. And it makes a big difference when you do this every day. Last up, the fourth horseman that predicts a bitter end is stonewalling. Here's what stonewalling is. It's really emotional withdrawal from conflict. Usually when a, when a listener is uh, listening to somebody talk, they actually give the speaker a lot of signals that they are tracking, that they're, that they're there, not necessarily agreeing. They maintain, they're sort of an open body. They maintain eye contact, nod their heads. The stonewaller doesn't do that. Looks down and away. There's no facial movement. There's no vocalization. There may be an occasional glance at the speaker just to see if the ogre has magically disappeared. What does stonewalling do? You know, what it does is that the speaker doesn't think he or she is getting through, right? So instead of getting out the 40-pound cannon, when they're stonewalling, the speaker gets out the 60-pound cannon. Boom! You know, let's really have an impact. Stonewalling is a common response when someone's distressed and becomes emotionally flooded. In these escalated situations, Gottman suggests communicating that you need a break, to take a breather, and come back to the conversation when everyone's had a chance to cool off. 
Gottman's other major contribution to divorce research is what he calls the magic number. It's the ratio of positive behaviors to negative behaviors during a conflict. So, what would you guess the ratio is? I predicted that divorced couples would have a higher number of negative behaviors than positive behaviors. But actually, the ratio is about equal. Divorced couples have just as many positive behaviors as there are negative behaviors. Which is kind of surprising, right? It shows that if you criticize someone and show contempt for them, but then turn around and are grateful and affectionate to them, those two things don't cancel each other out. When it comes to emotions, neutral isn't actually neutral. Couples that are successful, on the other hand, achieve the magic number, which is five positive behaviors to every one negative behavior. Five to one. So that's an interesting equation. And it sort of suggests that if you do something negative to hurt your partner's feelings, you know, that you have to make up for it with five positive things. So the equation is not balanced in terms of positive and negative. Negative has a lot more ability to inflict pain and damage than positive things have to heal and bring you closer. For a relationship to feel right, it has to be a very rich climate of affection and humor and fun and intimacy and empathy. We've all seen the headlines, right? 50% of couples in America end up divorced. And we've discussed some of the ways that we can set ourselves up for success. But there's one more way to cut America's divorce rate in half. And it takes zero effort. Chapter 3, Divorce, but optimistically. I want to avoid implying that divorce is a bad thing, because it's not. The antiquated idea that divorce is some kind of moral or personal failure is out of touch with the fluid realities of life. The world changes, and we change, and our relationships change too. Sometimes people manage to grow together, and sometimes they grow apart. It's okay when they do. So the point of this process of, you know, introspection and feeling prepared for marriage, to me, isn't specifically to prevent divorce. It's to prevent suffering. Because a crumbling relationship or a divorce is really, really hard. And side note, it's also very expensive. I'm talking $15,000 on average. So about that 50% divorce rate. I think this single statistic stokes some of the cynicism that millennials and Gen Z have about marriage. And really, any reasonable person should see this number and wonder, right? Is my relationship really that exceptional? How can I be sure? But this number is also misleading. There's one variable that cuts the divorce rate in half to only 25%. And that's by waiting until you're at least 28 years old to tie the knot. The average divorcee is 30 and has been married for eight years, which all points to the reality that a significant chunk of divorces in America is couples that married in their early 20s. I know, I know, hashtag not all early 20s, but also hashtag a lot of early 20s. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? The human brain doesn't even finish developing until around age 25. And people change a lot between 20 and 30. You've had time to explore who you are, witness your own strengths and weaknesses, time to think about what kind of life you want. 
the qualities you want in a partner to lead it with. You've dated a few types of people. You've made mistakes with them. You've probably held a few jobs, gone to school, or traveled around a bit, which all adds up to seeing yourself more clearly. In recent years, I felt like I could see marriage itself more clearly too. Maybe I don't need to define it by its long gone but very questionable history, or its capitalistic happily ever after narrative driving the $57 billion wedding industry. Maybe I get to decide what marriage means to me. And honestly, while the institution of marriage doesn't feel like the epitome of romance, it does feel pragmatic. It's a tool for my partner and I to navigate the systems in society. Things like mortgages, taxes, adoption, unexpected hospital visits, like a buddy system for life. As we are getting prepared to plan a wedding and tie the knot, I notice something. While my daily brain is full of clouds of anxiety that fog up my head about pretty much everything, on the matter of our commitment, my mind is quiet, my heart aglow and full of trust, maybe for the first time ever. More than enough trust to take his hand and jump. Thank you guys so much for being here with me for another year of Indirect Message. I'm so grateful to each of you and your support in this pet project of mine. I hope that over the holiday break, you can take some time to relish having made it through another year on this chaotic planet. Good work, everyone. All right, I'll see you again soon.